Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is historian and author Thomas Waters, who joined me to talk about his 2019 book, Cursed Britain, a history of witchcraft and black magic in modern times. In the book, Thomas explores the enduring nature of magic and witchcraft in the British Isles from 1800 up to the present day, how its popularity waxed and waned over those years, and the societal factors that played a part in those fortunes. It also offers a fascinating insight into the lives of some of the people who engaged in these secretive practices, as well as those affected by them, people who transcended class divides and lived all across the land, from large cities to remote islands. As soon as I found out about Thomas and his book last year, I knew I had to try and get him on the podcast, so it was great to make that happen. Enjoy! Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rick. Nice to be here, and hello, audience. To begin with, just tell us a little bit about your background and what prompted you to write Cursed Britain. Okay. Um, I guess I could give quite a, a long and sort of multi-stage answer to that. I'll just talk at first a little bit about what I'm aware of and, you know, my conscious mind, why I would do something as absurd as spend... Well, the honest truth of it is I've spent about 15 years researching the history of uh, witchcraft and magic, mostly in Britain, um, over the last couple of centuries. And it all started when I was an undergraduate at Leeds University. And I was sitting there, if anyone um, knows Leeds, there's a wonderful uh, library that's attached to the university, the Brotherton Library. Um, and it's behind the Parkinson building, this sort of glorious um, Portland Stone building on Woodhouse Lane in Leeds. And I was studying at that time as an undergraduate, I was a, you know, doing a history degree. I was very interested in the Victorian period, in particular, um, the history of political thought in the Victorian period, the reforms of Parliament that occurred over the course of the 19th century and how various intellectual debates about the merits of um, different political systems and what have you um, informed the reform of Parliament. You know, So I was really interested in the kind of uh, very hard-nosed and intellectual side of Victorian history and also interested in lots of other things like you know the kind of stuff you could see in cities like Leeds you know um, the glorious civic buildings the, the municipal improvements that occurred the technological advances the industrial revolution in the early 19th century urbanization great population growth you know all these sort of uh, classic themes in the history of the 19th century and I, I liked all this stuff I liked it very very much in fact but um, I was reading a diary from the period. I was sort of just reading around the period, really, trying to work out what I was going to do a research project on for my dissertation. And I was reading a diary by a clergyman, a kind of, at the time, quite a lowly clergyman. Um, he was a curate, which is kind of like an, a very badly paid assistant, really, um, on the Welsh border. He's a guy called Francis Kilvert. And um, He's quite a famous diarist now, but he was a totally obscure figure then when he was writing in the 1870s. And I was reading his diary and expecting to find references to lots of intellectually demanding and high-minded debates that were occurring in the late 19th century um, in the realm of religion, you know, so about uh, biblical criticism, about advances in the study of the Bible and how that was influencing um, how, how, how 
people sort of saw the, the biblical narratives about advances in science and in biology and, and what have you and how that was kind of affecting um, people's conception of how life evolved and changed and where it came from on earth that kind of thing so I was, I was reading this clergyman's diary expecting to find basically more really intellectual high-minded stuff you know, all about Charles Darwin and German biblical criticism and that kind of thing and I didn't find that at all actually reading this diary this guy was immersed in the daily life of villagers um, you know people living in a really rural environment in what to us would be in many ways a very sort of uncomfortable and very impoverished life on the Welsh border and instead of being about political reform instead of being about evolution and biblical criticism instead the things that came up in this diary were ghosts um, curses spells luck charms esoteric healing and rather than this diary being filled with sort of lots of anxious debates about the merits or not of democracy um, or kind of non-literal forms of um, uh, understanding of the bible instead it was all about these villagers who you know when their friend died or their brother died or you know this sort of terrible stuff like that they they kind of came to the clergyman later and they said that you know before i even got news of this event I'd met him on the road, I'd met him in an ethereal form and he'd been running towards me and he'd run through me. Or it was about villagers who had been experiencing spates of misfortunes, really crushing things that had happened to them and their families, you know, sort of economic problems, losing jobs, getting ill, you know, children dying, absolutely horrendous stuff. And who'd ultimately responded to this, um, these kind of uh, events by looking at magic, wondering, asking themselves, you know, could we be bewitched? Has somebody got it in for us in a kind of, in a really weird and nasty way? Are they casting spells on us? Do we need to go to an expert magician to um, find a solution? Um, and I basically, you know, when I was in the Brotherton Library in Leeds, you know, doing my Victorian history, I, I came across all these references in this diary and it was a complete uh, revelation, basically, you know, because I'd always imagined the Victorian period um, very much in terms of the sort of, the language of the time, the dominant language about, oh, I don't know, modernity, enlightenment, intellectual advance, um, and, you know, sort of secularism, science, this kind of thing. And instead, I came across this really powerful material um, about, I suppose, enchanted magical ways of thinking and behaving. And that formally, you know, that as a kind of a single event, that's what took me down this path, really, where I've been studying the modern history of witchcraft and magic. It covers a period from 1800s onwards. Was there something around the time of 1800 that you feel is a mark in the sand between attitudes towards witchcraft? I wouldn't really say there's a solid change, a, a really distinctive break in the year 1800. Um, the, the reason I, t I took that was that um, conventionally, at least amongst academic historians, uh, and this might be mystifying to um, to sort of uh, uh, to some people, but, but 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 the term modern and modern history is usually used to describe. I mean, sometimes it's used to describe the period after the fall of the Western Roman Empire and all sorts, or after the Renaissance. But more conventionally, it's used to describe the last couple of centuries, the period after the French Revolution in 1789. Um, so I just wanted to study. The the entire modern witchcraft in the Western world, in, in Britain, in the modern period and cover the whole of the modern period from the early 1800s up to the present day. Um, I didn't want to look again at the period of the witch trials in Europe, which is the period when um, witchcraft was defined as a, a kind of a reality and a crime by states and was kind of persecuted. And, you know, the period in the, basically in the 1400s, later 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 
um, when somewhere in the region, I'm sorry to say, of about 50,000 people were executed in Europe for after having been found guilty of practicing witchcraft. Um, I didn't want to kind of cover that period again, because although it's really important and it's really fascinating and quite disturbing as well, um, there are there is a great deal of study already been done on that area that's very much known about this topic. And um, whereas the modern history of witchcraft uh, is, is, is a is a much more obscure topic, a, a lot this ground that's been trodden a, a sort of a lot less regularly, and it, you know, it's, it's it, and, and that's really why I was focusing on the period since 1800. It's it, it, I want to cover the entirety of the modern period um, because it's something that's I still think it's not 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 very well known really that how much witchcraft actually is part of uh, modern history and modern social history. Mm, definitely, I imagine when a lot of people think of witchcraft and famous events that involve that, they think of. The Pendle Witches over here and the Salem Witch Trials in America, which are yeah. you know, 100 and 150 odd years earlier than the period at which your book yes, commences. Exactly. Yeah. And one thing I found interesting in the book is that actually in this time period, it seems as though because the state doesn't acknowledge witchcraft as a crime for the most part, it's actually people who attack witches or suspect someone of committing witchcraft and takes it into their own hands that suffer the law so unusually mm-hmm. in this time period uh, people who are accused of being witches are protected by the state to some degree yes that's that's true and, and, and increasingly so i mean i think it's one of the uh, major themes of the book actually is how magical um maybe not so much magical beliefs but mag- magical practices are very much shaped by unaffected by although not entirely determined by the uh, legal structures the legal framework the um, patterns of law enforcement this kind of thing um uh, but yeah that's absolutely right what you what you were saying that the the, the state the british state um, no longer recognized witchcraft as a reality um it, it did um outlaw basically making money by magic what you know pretenses to to, to subtle craft and you know there's these kind of laws that um outlawed selling magical services formally although they weren't enforced that much we can um uh, but but yes the victimization of witches the persecution of witches was in the 19th century and in fact in the 20th century and i'm afraid still today um around lots lots of parts of the world it's not really carried out by states anymore it's carried out by um ordinary people by people who typically either believe that they've been bewitched by someone and they're looking not some, not just for revenge, but to kind of try and free themselves from this alleged force by going and attacking in some way uh, the person they blame for witchcraft, or by wider communities who believe that they have people who are using and harnessing and summoning um, dark powers in their midst. And yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the sad tale really of uh, you know that there's an awful lot of this. There are hundreds and hundreds of cases from the early 1800s um, in the towns and villages of Georgian and Victorian Britain, but um, in the cities too, in the most urban areas, you know, in Leeds and in Manchester in the 1830s and, and, and later, you know, in Newcastle, in London, even you know, right throughout the 19th century, of people going to try and rough up, spit in the face, scratch, um, sometimes, and in a in the worst cases, even kill people who they believed were um, practicing the dark and the wicked type of witchcraft. Hmm. The book's got 10 chapters which progress from 1800s up until the present day. How did you determine how to break up that timeline and the, the signature element to each time period? Because I imagine that there must have been 
so much there to research. How do you how do you go about finding something that sort of exemplifies the the eras that you cover in the book? It, it it is difficult. It's something to agonise over, and it's something that, that that I really really did agonise over. I suppose the one of the the main um, questions that you have to answer as a historian is whether to organise your study and your writing, whether to organise it thematically, principally, um, or to organise it chronologically, and uh, advances advantages, excuse me, and disadvantages to those different things. And like you said, what I try to do is to break my um, chapters down into covering distinct periods, and within those periods they'd be characterized by themes um so the themes are kind of uh, fit within the periods basically I, I tried to um I, I tried to work out where the where the changes were in terms of changing the zeitgeist changing public mood um changes in regulation um changes in policing um that mark the major turning points or evolutions in the history of witchcraft and magic in the modern period and i tried to use those i tried to stop my chapters when when things were were, were about to change you know so for for example i've got um, a chapter that covers the period between the 1830s and the 1860s and that's because um uh, you know reading closely the evidence from that period the um the sort of printed sources um newspapers and diaries and autobiographies and legal records and what have you that seems to be uh, a time when um when kind of in quotes respectable people um people with 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 power and authority and sort of and money and social status and so on those people in britain started to become quite exercised about the existence of something they call popular superstition um th- this was the idea that the population were um, carriers of uh, credulous and ridiculous ideas and, um, you know, including beliefs about supernatural powers like witchcraft and ghosts. And, and, and during this uh, period, the 1830s to 60s, um, kind of um, well-to-do people were they were getting rather anxious about the population, about, you know, I was talking earlier on about political reform and what have you, about increasing demands to widen the franchise, widen the right to vote. And they were kind of watch, watching revolutions take place on the European continent. And they were worrying about their own uh, work, the working population of Britain and whether they might rise up in revolt. And, you know, this kind of paranoia fed into um, their, their concerns about people having beliefs in witchcraft and magic and see, allegedly uh, irrational beliefs um so, so so i try to look out for things like that really for shifts in the zeitgeist shifts in mood or changes in um regulation and what have you that that would allow me to um to break up the chronology in a way that you know sort of address particular themes how much information were you able to find to write the book in terms of sources i mean i imagine quite a lot but do you mm. talk about that journal that the curate wrote um were there items similar to that that were the main source of information or or I suppose yeah, kind of was there thing. a more broader spectrum of uh, that you could call upon it was a it was a broader spectrum of sources i, I mean if I, I suppose if I had to say a single body of sources that are the you know the one I draw upon most in the book it's probably newspaper reports and the ni- 19th century was described by contemporaries as um, the age of newspapers it was an age of when there was a massive increase in the number of local newspapers, there had many more um, local newspapers then in the nineteenth century than than we do now. Um, you know, even most obscurest places and with a much smaller population, had many more local newspapers, um, and they used to cover local events and local court cases and this sort of thing, um, from things from the magistrate courts, local gossip, things from the higher courts, and you get to find out 
learned so much about witchcraft and magic by looking through these newspapers, you know, when people have uh, fallen out or they've, you know, they've gone shouting and attacking each other, swearing at each other. Or when, I don't know, when various professional magicians, they were called cunning men in this period, if they ever got in trouble with the authorities, they tended to, you know, and, they, and their trials went to court. You, you, when the cases are being investigated, you find so much about what they got up to. Um, so newspapers are the principal source, but there is a, there's a huge range of sources I rely on, on the, in the book um, from personal papers. Um, you know, there's some published diaries, unpublished diaries, um, you know, sort of unpublished manuscripts. In a few cases, you can use... Um, you can actually use grimoires and um, magic books, you know, some, some of which were printed and some of which were manuscript, um, you know, to find out about the kind of magic that people practiced. There's also there's a there's a rich and um, increasingly uh, studied, in fact, archaeological record of the um, social history of magic as well. Basically, um, people try to defend themselves and their families and their livestock and their possessions, often by... Um, trying to protect their buildings, trying to protect their houses and their barns and what have you, with also with a with a, a great range of material um, from written blessings, sort of hidden under floorboards, all sorts of bizarre stuff like you know spoons put in the back of ovens, um, shoes in roofs, uh, cats behind brick. You know, I'm sorry, cat lovers, this is uh, this is part of the dark history, animal history of the modern period. Um, cats bricked up behind walls um, and you know sort of scratch markings. On, that were believed to have a protective and a sort of ritualistic quality put up on, on walls in strategic places. Um, so there's a, there's a huge range of material, basically, for the modern history of magic. It includes, as I said, newspapers, personal papers, the archaeology of protective magic, and also um, folklore sources are really helpful too. Um, folklore became a kind of like a semi-respectable academic discipline that kind of emerged in the mid-19th century. And it's always been had a you know slightly ambiguous relationship with universities and the academy but there, there were lots of people who you know doctors and sort of um, um, you know middle class ladies in the countryside and all, clergymen all this sort of people who in the late half of the 19th century decided that there was actually a lot of worth and of value in the um, the sort of esoteric and the mystical and the supernatural beliefs of the uh, rural population as they conceived of it and they were less interested. They made a lot of assumptions, wrong assumptions, actually, about townsfolk. Um, so there's a lot of folklore collecting going on where, you know, sort of very snooty and posh people were kind of going up to their servants or field labourers and field labourers and what have you and saying, oh, looky at what, what, and, you know, can you tell me any more about this uh, this and that? Um, and, um, so those folklore sources are extremely revealing as well. Uh, so what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that there's a huge wealth of material to study the modern history of magic, and yet... The great challenge, I think, in studying this topic isn't so much um, covering the huge range of material, which there undoubtedly is. It's the fact that this whole topic is kind of, I suppose it's sort of marked by secrecy, marked by silence, marked by a kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of eerie feeling. I don't know if you've come across this on your podcast or with anybody you've talked to about these kind of um, Fortean or preternatural or sort of spooky subjects. You know, Quite a few people have the feeling that, you know, if you're talking about the dark type of magic, you're talking about, I don't know, fairies or, you know, this kind of thing. Some people will laugh at this stuff, but some people will think that actually you shouldn't really be talking about that. If And talking about it, talking about it in a very open way and especially in a disrespectful way, it kind of tempts fate. Um, hmm. You know the phrase, speak of the devil and he'll appear. Yeah. 
this was in a lot of you know in a lot of people's minds particularly in the 19th century um, a lot of ordinary people that you know kind of half believed in witchcraft that, that they felt that you know you shouldn't speak openly about this you should deny its reality you should if this stuff is true why why would you try and kind of antagonize these mysterious and dark forces by um i don't know by by describing what they're up to and, and that's the real challenge um challenge i found when studying the modern history of witchcraft is you can't always really take people's utterances um at face value sometimes they're trying trying to kind of throw people off the scent and and you have to take this eerie feeling that you know it's a topic that shouldn't really be spoken about into account and that's what makes it uh, difficult to to kind of analyze and critique the sources Mm, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel like if you're researching something like this, there's more chance of unusual stuff happening in your life. It's because you're taking an active interest in it. In it. You're, you're mm. engaging with this subject on a mental level. Yeah. Did you find did anything unusual happen to you while you were writing the book? Subtly. When I started writing the book I think I came from you know I've been out, I've been on a journey as they say uh, writing this I think I came at it from a really perhaps it'd be a bit too much to say fiercely secular perspective but quite sort of stubbornly and brittly secular perspective um, and that's a perspective that not all academic historians and academics studying the preternatural or the footian have but it's uh, it's an attitude that a lot of them have um, one of the seminal books in this field, it's a study of uh, uh, what's aw- awkwardly called the early modern period, you know, the Tudor and Stuart period. It's called Religion and the Decline of Magic by a very eminent historian called Sir Keith Thomas. It came out in the 70s. And in the preface of that book, you know, Sir Keith writes something about, you know, it's all about sort of astrology and witchcraft and curses and fairies and what have you. Um, he, he, he writes that these kind of things are not credited or not believed in by intelligent persons nowadays you know it's very snooty it's very kind of looking down the nose and you know totally the you know it's not empathetic at all um and i i wasn't i, I guess i wasn't that sort of anti-magic as someone like sir keith thomas would be when i began studying this but i was kind of very um sort of secure i guess in the uh, conviction that um, you know, there's no such thing as the supernatural, that, you know, that, that these things can all be explained sociologically and what have you. And over the course of um, studying the modern history of witchcraft and magic, I suppose I've been some of the eeriness and the seriousness of the subject has rubbed off on me. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sort of, I, I'm not so dismissive now, you know, um, it, it's a really powerful topic. And I wouldn't want to kind of go around being uh, kind of contempt you know you know treating it with contempt and uh treating it with derision or anything anything like that i think it's a you know magic something that deserves respect it's something that's very intricate it's something that can be very difficult very demanding it's something that's you know it's a very powerful idea um you know very powerful stories and motifs and what have you and some of that um maybe quite a lot of that has, has kind of rubbed off on me um you know i could i suppose if, if we're looking for sort of single incidents perhaps uh, you know something i could talk about I, you know i don't think about i've been bewitched or anything like that but but having having said that you, you know there are people actually who've uh, you know who've studied this subject and you know sort of anthropologists and what have you and you know people have asked them you know i don't know how you can study this you must feel you've been bewitched and you know there's a french anthropologist uh, you know one of my favorite 
scholars actually in this area called Jean Favre Sada, who studied um, witchcraft in Normandy in the north of France in the 1970s and late 60s and 70s. And she came to believe, um, you know, she came from a skeptical perspective initially, and she came to believe that ultimately by inquiring too deeply and too kind of naively into this subject that she'd been bewitched. Anyway, I don't believe anything like that, but I'm, I must say that, you know, in all candor, I do have, uh, you know, one of those evil eye pendants that you find around the Mediterranean. I do have one of those. I'm just looking at it at the moment, hung on a cabinet in my study. Um, uh, but anyway, I said I was going to talk about a single incident. Um, I was down in the, uh, when I was finishing the book off, I was down on one of my uh, trips to the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle in Cornwall, um, which if any of your listeners uh, know of will know it's a wonderful place. And if any of your listeners haven't been, I can uh, I can thoroughly recommend it. A beautiful setting and an amazing museum. Um, have you had the pleasure of uh, sort of encountering it yourself, by the way, Rick? Yeah, I have. I, I agree. It's, it's a brilliant museum I, I love it down there yeah um anyway uh, i was down there and uh i was talking to um uh some of the uh you know curators there about uh, about the objects and one of them uh, uh uh joyce was telling me about about some of the kind of weird stories that are attached to you know the undoubtedly s- uh, sinister objects that are on display down there the um the cursing puppets you know hearts photographs dolls that are stuck with pins for the at least for the intended purpose of harming other people uh, esoterically. I was sorry about that. Someone ac- accelerating past my window there. Um, That's okay. <laughs> I uh, uh, maybe it's a sign. I was uh, <laughs> I, I was listening to all these stories that Joyce was telling about. You know how these objects are loaned out to other museums, but when they're loaned out, strange things tend to happen. You know, it's almost like a kind of a dark energy is being released from the cabinets, or that it goes with these things and. You know that curators at the new museums they have mishaps and accidents. They might there was one guy apparently who who had opened a box with this stuff in and he was riding home on his bike and you know he fell in the canal. Coincidence, I ask you. Well, I, I don't know, but anyway, these these kind of stories uh, they stayed with me anyway. You know, I, I can be lighthearted about it, but at the same time, I must admit, you know, after I was thinking this stuff over and I had a really terrible nightmare about one of these you know waking up in you know in darkness with one of these puppets you know being stabbed with pins and you know like a shadow looming over me and things you know kind of spooky that that's about as spooky as it's got for me I suppose in terms of my personal experience but um some of the eeriness of the topic I think has has rubbed off on me and I um I think I approach it um ultimately with uh, with more respect now than I did uh, when I began um studying uh, this area Mm. Going back to that book that you mentioned, uh, that talked about the decline mm. of magic uh, in the yeah. in the time period covered in your book. What would you say was the health of magic in that time period, and and what factors might affect that health? Because in in that time period, you know, we have it's around mm. the time of the industrial revolution, and more people are moving from the countryside into cities and. In your book, there are loads of examples of local cunning people all across Britain from Cornwall up to Aberdeenshire. So the factors that were shaping Britain in the 19th and 20th centuries, how do they affect the health of witchcraft? Yeah, good good question. Um, I should say at the start as a bit of a warning that, of course, um, 
you know, historians degree, disagree about many of these matters. And, you know, my, my views about the kind of fortunes of uh, the currency of magical beliefs and practices and why they change and how they change don't necessarily and don't in all cases accord with the um, with the views of others. So, of course, your, your readers should, uh, you know, that, 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 that my book, of course, is the perfect gift. But, you know, there's a big uh, um, <laughs> there's a big literature to look at and, and, and you know, read around the topic by all means. Um, as I see it from, uh, you know, you know from, from my research, I think that magic was extremely widely believed in, um, except, you know, it, by, I don't know, perhaps the very, uh, you know, pinnacle of British society, except amongst, you know, the kind of most learned people, there have been some diminution of uh, willingness to credit the reality of supernatural forces like uh, witchcraft. Uh, but it's very widely believed in throughout the 19th century. Um, I think it was probably, you, you know, it's hard to be really blunt about it. There weren't any opinion polls um, at this time. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, a majority of people, when times got bad, uh, got really bad and, you know, they got desperate. I think that throughout the 19th century, a majority of people would be at least willing to, you know, think that, you know, maybe there is some such thing as uh, as, as the dark type of witchcraft uh, that you know personal misfortunes can be caused by ill wishes and overlooking and the evil eye and spells of um, evilly disposed people um, and I think it remained uh, that, that witchcraft remained very widely spoken of very widely believed in and in my view uh, the currency of uh, belief in this kind of dark type of witchcraft it went into pretty rapid decline in the first half of the 20th century and i don't think the reasons for that are the reasons that are normally given in other books about this kind of topic um often the explanation for the uh, apparent for the de- decline or, or or the sort of decay or the waning somewhat of um, beliefs in witchcraft and magic are things like um, you know, modernization vaguely, uh, industrialization, urbanization, or the increasing education of the population. But I'm skeptical of those explanations. And part of the reason I'm skeptical of them is if you look around the world today, um, you can find well educated societies, industrial urban societies, where um, there's nevertheless a very um, uh, prevalent belief in the dark types of occultism. For example, you can look at some of the opinion polling in sub-Saharan Africa, where um, witchcraft remains, um, the belief in witchcraft remains a, is a very serious um, and pressing problem, and it should be more widely recognised as such, in my view. Um, you know, it's the inspiration for uh, legions of human rights abuses, you know, people being um, ostracised and killed and all that, all that sort of thing, being use of witchcraft but if you look at the opinion polling um it's it shows that actually even amongst um, university graduates amongst science graduates amongst doctors amongst members of government that kind of thing in um and, and not just in sub-saharan africa in fact across the world um there's, there's 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 still you know pretty high levels of belief in witchcraft and magic um so i think just the evidence of today basically shows that you know you education and what have you doesn't have much to do with it actually a lot you know you can be you can be really intelligent really educated person of course i mean we probably know people like this who believe nonetheless in the reality of esoteric forces um so so i think actually it wasn't the kind of increasing provision of state education the growth of schools people going to school later or or urbanization or anything like that 
that that principally caused the decline of belief in, in the dark type of witchcraft in Britain in the early 20th century. Instead, um, I think it actually, the, the, the kind of main driver of this decline was that, um, you know, the cunning folk that we've spoken about, the, um, you know, they sometimes be called white witches. They were also known as um, pellers down in Cornwall. Um, the word peller probably comes from repeller, as in repeller of, um, you, know, uh, you know, hostile forces. Or uh, wizards, um, uh, you know, wise people, this kind of thing. Um, cunning folk, uh, they began to be um, victims, really, of a kind of an, a, a real uh, concerted effort by the state, the British state, um, supported by the medical authorities, um, the orthodox medical profession, to kind of clamp down on esoteric healthcare. And there was a rash of new laws passed in the early 20th century to criminalise um, various forms of uh, non-orthodox and esoteric um, healthcare and medicine. Um, there were also requirements that people advertising themselves as nurses and this kind of thing um, had to register, um, you know, how to do it in formal ways. Um, so I think what happened really is that there was a, there was a big clampdown on the esoteric healthcare market. And that, that really mattered because cunning folk, um, you know, these people were you know, they've been part of a profession um, selling magical services, not just counter witchcraft services, but a whole range of things, including uh, thief detection, fortune telling, love magic, this sort of thing. Um, they, and they've been crucial to um, propagating these kind of ideas. You, you know, people went to them. Typically, they went to them, you know, rather like they would nowadays, really, when, you know, things are going wrong in your life and you tried all the kind of normal remedies, you know, you'd gone to the doctor, you'd, you'd, you'd tried harder to get a new job, I don't know, you'd, um, uh, you, you know, you'd gone to the clergyman or whatever, and uh, you tried all the normal remedies and nothing was working. And in desperation, people tended to go to cunning folk, and then cunning folk would explain to their clients what witchcraft was, how it operated, how you could identify um, uh purveyors of dark magic, uh, those types of witches, how you could combat them. Uh, basically, these people were the kind of, um, you know, they were really important in propagating this way of thinking and seeing the world and interpreting misfortunes. And when they started to find the police hanging out at their door, when they started to find themselves in court increasingly, uh, you know, they, they, they basically had to start shutting up shop or new people didn't start going into the trade as much as they used to. And as I see it, uh, you know, that's one of the principal drivers, not the only one by any means, but one of the principal drivers is the declining number of, um, of cunning folk, basically, and purveyors of esoteric healthcare. And, uh, and as they declined, there weren't as many people out there in the community to teach others about what the kind of maleficent type of witchcraft was. And that's why um, by the 1940s, 1950s, it, you know, you don't really, you're not really, don't really find that many references to witchcraft, of the, at least of the dark, sinister type in the British press. Um, and it seems that, you know, people had, had stopped so readily uh, when they were going through crises, interpreting them in terms of, you know, the, uh, the swirl and the kind of influence of hostile powers. And there's a kind of coda to this um, this arc that I've drawn here that, you know, basically you've got very prevalent, very widespread uh, belief in, in, in magic in the Victorian period and a kind of quite a rapid decline in the early 20th century. I take the view that there's been something of an increase in um, not just in magical beliefs, but in people acting on their magical beliefs in Britain since about the 1970s. And that's because in the kind of um you, you know in the sort of uh, in the changing atmosphere where um you know we're more open to um 
or I suppose alternative religions and minority religions, minority spirituality and what have you. This kind of opened up a space again for um, not just magicians, but people from, uh, you know, sort of representing various religions as well to um, articulate much more kind of supernatural and powerful supernatural beliefs again. And I, I think there's been basically been an increase in the number of esoteric healers, um, fortune tellers and deliverance ministers, you know, exorcists, this kind of thing since about the 1970s. And with them, um, there's been an increase amongst the population as well about of people who, you know, when terrible things happen to them, are willing to entertain the idea that, you know, perhaps in fact they've been psychically attacked or cursed or, you know, or what have you. Hmm. Going back to the time period of the early 20th century, that's mm. when we have people like Alistair Crowley and Dion Fortune, who are yep. whose social status is upper middle class, upper class. Do you find that the sort of magic that people engage with reflects their social status? So in the countryside and in working class areas, you'd have cunning folk and with the middle class, you have and the upper class, you have societies like the Golden Dawn, who are trying to contact otherworldly beings and things like that. Is there a relationship between social status and the sort of witchcraft that people are engaging with? Yeah, there is a relationship, but I'd say I'd describe it as a soft relationship rather than a mm. really hard one. Um, the kind of really, you know, the sort of avant-garde people that you're talking about, you know, sort of middle class uh, upper middle class victorians and edwardians uh you know who've got very interesting hobbies uh you know involving you know ceremonial gowns and quite intricate and demanding ceremonial magic in sort of that done in bay window rooms in nice suburbs and that kind of thing those sort of people were really at the forefront of creating new esoteric concepts and new magical ideas you mentioned Dion Fortune. She's uh, features as a case study in my book, actually, explaining um, how um, you know Dion Fortune was her sort of um, her adopted name, really, for her esoteric and her magical persona. Um, how she, her, her real name, her kind of birth name, as it were, not real names, perhaps not the right expression, um, was Violet Firth. And uh, you know, I, I, I explain how she kind of became uh, immersed in the world of Western esotericism. And became so important to it all, and she uh, she came up with um, the concept of uh, of psychic attack as a kind of form of mystic interpersonal harm, as a kind of form of updated witchcraft. And people like her, you know, you were saying about what's the relationship between uh, social class and social status and esoteric ideas and practices. Um, people like her, the kind of uh, you know well-to-do and you know you know quite. Uh, very literate people they were at the forefront of creating new um, new terms new concepts new types of rituals new methods for enacting magic um, but having said that these kind of new forms of of, of 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 magic and esotericism they did spread throughout the whole population albeit less and more slowly um so so even in the late 19th century you get uh, cunning folk who for example um uh, you know have got a, a kind of very catholic um, I mean, very eclectic, Catholic in that sense, a very eclectic form of magic that draws on, you know, quite archaic and rural feeling folk magic uh, with, along with, you know, quite specialised sort of grimoire based magic. And then they're sort of incorporating cunning folk from the late 19th century, kind of incorporating ideas, uh, what you might call pseudoscientific ideas, um, notions of the uh, connection between 
esoteric forces and electricity, for example, and magnetism. And, you know, so, so you'll get cunning folk making rec recommending that their clients have good luck charms, have potions, um, do biblical readings, uh, certain biblical readings to protect themselves, but also that they should be um, treated with apparently magnetized bits of metal and certain chemicals and this kind of thing. So, yes, there's a, as I, as I was saying, there's a kind of soft relationship between social class and uh, the, the practice of magic. The avant-garde stuff tends to happen a bit higher up the social scale, but there are connections and, you know, the sort of the whole world, of, uh, yeah, the whole kind of magical domain it, it is kind of connected and ideas permeate and move, and move around and what have you. Hmm. And I suppose the wealthier you are, the more you can travel and visit places like yeah. Egypt and the Himalayas and all these different places in the world where you can bring back ideas with you and that can inform your concept regarding the supernatural. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can afford the sort of expensive books, um, the printed grimoires that were put out by uh, members of the Golden Dawn at the late 19th century. Um, and, and as you say, travel um, and in, in encountering um, exotic or remote or distant uh, cultures and societies is really important in the history of magic uh, and, and you know obviously that's something that in, in the 19th century early 20th century in the you know in the era of the British Empire um, you know lot, people from all social classes did that and people from all social classes were actually often um, very, although they went abroad sometimes quite cynically were often very impressed even in spite of themselves by the kind of magical traditions and supernatural um and spiritual traditions that they encountered there but but as you say you know it's something that goes on particularly intensely amongst quite well-to-do travelers who can really afford to do this kind of stuff and immerse themselves in these worlds and you know but by the books and you know by the journals that that, that tell you all about um you, you know a, be, a beer in the caribbean or um, you know whatever uh, other different uh, esoteric and magical traditions you might encounter around the world mm. In this time of empire, when people are coming to mainland Britain to work, how does that affect the use of witchcraft amongst the, the working classes? What sort of changes are there, if any? Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's. I think it's later, really, uh, that um, I suppose what you might class as sort of exotic or non-Western uh, forms of magic come to really uh, influence the popular practice and understanding of, of of magic you know i think it's sort of i think it's more you know it's very very strong nowadays that kind of thing um but uh, I, I think it's something that becomes a really sort of noticeable um aspect of the, the the history of magic from the later 20th century having said that it is there a bit in the early 20th century you know there's uh, <clears throat> people who tra traveled abroad for a bit you know kind of went to work in south africa and came back to britain that kind of thing some some of them had, had had um oh had been to kind of see uh rainmakers in or, or you know various various prophets or um you know people who were often at the time called you know it's, it's quite vague and you know not a very good category in some ways called witch doctors in africa you know you'd find working class people british people who'd gone out to serve in the empire they'd um you know they'd have problems they know that while they were working out there and, you know, as I was saying before, the, the you know, the normal solutions hadn't worked. So they'd gone to see some of the, um, using the terminology of the time, the native healers. Um, and yeah, they came back with these kind of stories. They wrote to newspapers about this sort of stuff, about how, you know, we'd been contemptible of it. I've been uh, rude about it, but actually, don't you know, that, that actually they were right, that these things worked. 
And I, I guess uh, some people, some working class people came back, like um, some middle class people, with a newfound respect for magic and for spiritual powers and weren't quite as ready to dismiss um, these things as sort of as barbarous superstitions, as they were called um, uh, by certain ideologues of empire at the time. It's a really fascinating area, actually, the, uh, you know, the sort of magical encounters that people had um, in the British Empire, because, uh, you know, at, at that time, the empire, um, it was justified culturally, it had a kind of ideology that went with it, you know, to, you know, so to allow people to make their peace with, you know, millions of people going abroad and sort of uh, subduing um, foreign nations by force and you, you know exploiting um, exploiting the lands and the people of those places to, to allow people to do that they needed to have an ideology that kind of argued that it was all in a good cause and uh, the, that ideology uh, that ideology excuse me um, is sometimes described as a civilizing mission and um, so lots of apologists for empire in the victorian period and for much of the 20th century actually um, argued that the empire was bringing civilization education science um, political liberty order this sort of thing to foreign nations and that it was replacing um, the kind of uh, w- what was described as ignorance and superstition and what have you um, so, so you know in these kind of in these depictions of uh, uh, of the empire being uh, a positive and a civilizing force, magic was and superstition were quite important actually because they were portrayed as the sort of negative things that British people going out to the far flung corners of the empire were going to eradicate and alter the good and this sort of thing. Well, actually, that didn't really happen in practice. Um, these these ideas were far too deeply embedded to be uh, easily challenged, and you know, contrary to what everyone had expected or what most people had expected, when people went out to the colonies, a fair, as I said, a fair portion of them found themselves uh, act- actually starting to half believe or maybe even more than half believe in the reality of um, various exotic forms of magic. Hmm, it's an interesting point you make. You don't really think of the word civilization as loaded, but it could be, couldn't it? The idea of civilizing somewhere to yeah. meet your own standards of what that word means. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it it is. It's um, you know, there's a there's a kind of there's a there's a really powerful politics that's implicit in it. It's it's not a neutral idea by any means, and you know, there's um, there's a whole kind of discipline of um, post-colonial studies and area studies and what have you that that sort of looks at this. I mean, I guess it's mostly associated with um, uh, you know that guy Edward Said. He was um, he was the author of a book in the 70s called Orientalism which tried to underline how important this kind of ideology was and the kind of the um, the culture of empire was to the actual practice of imperialism and I don't want to get too political about this I'm not I'm certainly not telling anyone what to think but um, y- you know there's some people that would think that actually the um, the ideology of the civilizing mission this sort of very political ideology um, that it that it even persists today as a justification for what you might call Western or um, neo-imperialism. Um, so, so you know, you think about things like um, the uh, wars on Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, they were done in the name of um, promoting democracy and that kind of thing. And it's it, it's not exactly the same as the, uh, and I don't think it's as, as egregious as the Victorian um, civilizing mission explanation of empire. But there are parallels there, and it's uh, yeah, it's definitely something that repays uh, careful thought and scrutiny. I think. Mm, it definitely seems as though if you use a belief in the supernatural to mean uneducated, then mm. it's okay for you to 
educate those people however you see fit and change their lives because you're doing them a favor yeah it's it is actually it's i mean it's one of the very many real subtleties and difficulties of this topic that um kind of uh uh, there, there have been these extremely uh, political and, you know, somewhat duplicitous attacks on magic and the supernatural, you know, which are very unfair. And it's been used to, uh, you know, the, the existence of belief in, 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 you know, mystical forces has been used to justify political domination and imperialism and what have you. At the same time, um, I think we do have to acknowledge that, you, you know, there are, um, you know, for all the, there are, you know, kind of people find ma- belief in magic, um, you know, fulfilling and positive, and then and I, I maybe even in most cases it's fulfilling and positive. But the, um, you know, the concept of magic and of, of, of dark witchcraft and what have you has obviously been also used to justify all sorts of dreadful things as well. You know, I spoke briefly referred to, you know, human rights abuses that go on around the world today. You know, around the world today, thousands of people, you know goodness knows we haven't got strong estimates but you know it's probably tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people are you know abused or harmed every year in the name you know after being accused of of uh, witchcraft so yes although you you know there's some definitely some very unfair and quite um, sly attacks on magic that that have got kind of other purposes behind them at the same time you know sometimes uh, belief in magic and the practice of magic can lead to people being ripped off or worse and you know that's one of the troubles with this topic really is is knowing when the criticism's justified and when it's being uh, when it's basically being unfair right yeah and so looking at the end of the time period covered in the book what would you say the health of the relationship between those who practice witchcraft now and and those who don't mm. how do you describe the current state of things as they are now yeah I th- well I, th- I think the overall trend um, since the seventies is that there's uh, there's more latitude given to people who have um, you know kind of minority faiths and uh, you know who want to experiment with uh, the esoteric or who you know believe in the reality of very vivid supernatural or paranormal or, or magical forces. So these kind of ideas are not they're not as taboo as they were in the um, you know, sort of in the fifties, in the in in the sixties, that kind of you know, things were changing already in the sixties. Having said that, I mean they are still taboo. Um, so you know, there is uh, there is obviously more room for people to, uh, as I've said, you know, there are more people working as fortune tellers and what have you, and and you know, probably more people who who, who believe in the reality of the, you know, at least if you look at the opinion polling since the seventies, you know, more people who are prepared to admit they believe in the reality of ghosts, for example, uh, been a big increase since the seventies. And that's almost half of the population of Britain today would say that they believe in the reality of ghosts and hauntings. Whereas if you go back to the seventies, it was, oh, I can't, uh, you know, it was, it was something like 15% um, uh, thereabouts in the early seventies. Um, so, so there has been some change. Uh, there's been a kind of opening up of the, of, of the culture, but, but, but it, it, it still is, um, you know, it's obviously still quite a, a taboo area. Um, you know, we have, um, uh, you know, we have quite uh, militant atheists and secularists have, um, have a big following um, today. You know, you, you think about people like, uh, oh, I don't know, like uh, Richard Dawkins, for example, who, uh, um, you know, people who are very, uh, who, who wouldn't really see anything good of coming out of, um, you know, sort of a belief in in, in in mystical powers. You know, got quite a 
you know, quite a sort of aggressively hostile view. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I think the ch- trend is for greater liberalisation and a kind of opening up um, of the the culture so that people can, you know, express these ideas more fully. But they, they still are taboo. They're still kind of, you know, um, fortune telling and what have you, um, you know, selling of magical services is still, it's kind of legally dubious. It's I think, you know, technically breaches, you know, various advertising and consumer laws, which is why, you know, fortune tellers today have to say, are supposed to say things like this is for entertainment purposes only and what have you. Um, so there's a bit of an opening up, but it's still a very taboo area, and it's it, it's something I don't think we've, you know, as a um, you know, I don't, I don't think public opinion has given it that much careful thought actually, and I, th- I think it is an area that deserves uh, uh, you know a lot more attention than it's uh, received hitherto. Hmm. And when you were writing the book, I mean, I'm interested in the attitudes within academia. To this sort of subject because I get the impression that it's something that academics are interested in but they have to be careful how they engage in that interest when you were writing the book did you find that there was anything like that like in terms of your colleagues who you talked to about the book um a little not too much I, I, and I think the, uh, the the people working sort of very closely in very closely related areas are, you know, been, have been, um, you know, very supportive and uh, very generous and what have you. And you, and, you, mm. and you do get an increasing range of views, um, you know, kind of personal views, if you like, um, in academia nowadays. You know, you know, there are lots of people who are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're pagans, neo-pagans within um, academia today or, or people who identify as witches but not as pagan witches and, and what, what have you. So there's, there's um, uh, you know, academia is becoming slowly more di- diverse like uh, society is but, but but yeah there are there are some difficulties really um you, you, you know i tried to sort of in in this book i tried to explore the whole range of consequences of believing in um the dark type of magic and it can lead as i've you know said a few times already it it, it can lead to people who are wrongly accused of doing this kind of stuff it can lead to them being um uh victimized and uh you know sworn out ostracized you know life made a misery or even worse attacked and what have you but at the same time um some of the people who i study in the book who were suffering from overwhelming misfortunes who kind of couldn't cope basically who were going through something that seems to have been pretty close to a breakdown or a depression or very heightened anxiety uh when they went to see the cunning folk and they came to uh reassess all their problems in terms of witchcraft and magic and carried out the various rites and you know were were asked to believe that you know yes magic really is uh, a vital force and a reality in the world and um, were asked to follow these very specific the, the very specific prescriptions and magical solutions a lot of people uh we, we you know ultimately when they were asked afterwards they they said that you know yes this has done me a lot of good and you know they, they felt better ultimately you know these um it, it it seemed to have some even if you don't believe in the reality of the supernatural there seems to be some sort of psychosomatic power um and therapeutic power really in um in magic as a kind of therapeutic system uh, so so I, you know it's a difficult line to tread and by me kind of making that case that there are some um uh, there's some positive uh, there's some positive aspects to uh, believing in magic and at least for some people um it seemed to be uh you know that's i suppose that's probably quite a taboo thing still really within academia you, you know you, you, 
but uh, I, I, you know, I try to make that you know, obviously the case is based on um, based on evidence, and I, uh, you know, I, I invite readers to uh, make up their own minds to look at the uh, the evidence I've presented, and you know, to to, to work out whether they think it's. Um, uh, you know, convincing or not, but I'm afraid. You know, you just when you write a book like this about a topic like this, unfortunately, much as I'd like to, you can't please everyone. And I, and I think I've probably, on the one hand, offended some and really upset some of the more ardent, ardent secularists, and at the same time, I've upset and offended some of the more ardent and kind of uncritical proponents of magical thinking at the same time as well. I, you know, I try to sort of steer a course between those two extremes, but inevitably, uh, you know, I've uh, up- upset people from uh, both ends. At least you've given them something to agree on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, we don't like that. That's now. a great service, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> very true. I mean, I can't think of many people that have done that, actually. <laughs> No, no, that's true. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm bringing these divergent wings together. Yes, I could uh, <laughs> look at it like that. So, um, what's next for you? Have you, have you got your next book? Are you working on that, or got it ready to go? Well, I'm kind of mulling it over. Really, I should be. I don't know. Perhaps I should be making more productive use of the lockdown and you know writing the entire next thing. But. This one took me so long to research and write. As I said, it's a topic I've been researching for about 15 years and I've been writing it in this, you know, sort of written about it in other forms through more academic articles. You know, the the book's supposed to be much uh, more evocative of um, what it is to to believe that you're cursed and, you know, all all the kind of people involved in that situation from the people who were accused of witchcraft to the people who felt they were experiencing it to the white witches. Um, It took me five years to write it and I don't want to kind of, you know, really quickly jump into something else that I can't uh, kind of commit to really with the same level of uh, dedication uh, that I did with this. I've been, um, but but I have been working on new things. I've been um, I've been working uh, sort of trying to expand my uh, uh, understanding of magic in the modern world by looking um, beyond uh, beyond Britain, beyond the British Empire, and England, Scotland, and Wales. I've been doing some work on. Uh, magical traditions, supernatural tra- traditions, and folklore in Ireland, in modern Ireland. Um, I published a piece on um, on cursing in Ireland uh, fairly recently, and at the moment, the the main thing I'm working on actually is the history. Uh, I don't know if this will cause some raised eyebrows or quizzical expressions, but on the history of fairies. Cool. No, that's yeah. a, I'm very interested in, in that. Yeah, it's it's something that um, it's. It, I mean, it's extraordinary actually uh, how how broad fairy magic uh, was in the past and how broad it is today. That's something I've been amazed by um, studying it. You know, it's something that stretches from um, enchanted landscapes, land, um, you know, fairy thorns and forts and wraths and what have you in in Ireland, for example, and elsewhere, that were felt to be protected by the fairies to the fairies as um, the fairies had a kind of relationship with rebels uh, and have had a relationship with rebels throughout history. You know, you can go back to the Tudor period of people rising up in rebellion and signing their, um, uh, oh, I don't know, their kind of letters from the fairies. And actually, you can even find examples of similar things like that today to uh, the kind of darker side of fairy beliefs when, um, you know, when people get start suffering from paralysis or from certain forms of mental illness or certain forms of wasting diseases. And in the past, that's the kind of thing that's been blamed on the fairies. And in fact, people who've been very ill have been, um, 
in some, some circumstances identified as changelings and subjected to really violent exorcisms in the name of driving out fairies. So I've been looking at all this stuff, uh, basically, the poetry of fairies and, and what have you. It's, it's an amazing topic. Mm, definitely. Once you get past the notion of fairies as what you see in the Cottingley fairy yeah. pictures and in a Disney film, and you understand that actually the fairies are, they can be all shapes and sizes. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. One of the, my kind of favorite areas of Fortiana to, to read about, because there's there were researchers who connected the concept of fairies to UFO abductions uh, and Bigfoot and various other areas of Fortiana that you might not see the connections, but because fairies have a history of taking people, which is a lot like a UFO abduction. Yeah. And a lot of people who report Bigfoot, there's there's commonalities there because it's you know it's in a often in a forest, in a wilderness, and there's certain things that manifest in Bigfoot encounters are, are kind of redolent of what you might read about in fairy traditions. So yeah, it's a absolutely fascinating subject. It's it's, it's absolutely right. Yes, yeah, and it's an enormous and an expansive area. And as you say, um, it it really connects up with all sorts of other forms of um, uh, modern uh, mythology and Fortiana and narrative and what have you. I, I, th- I think you're absolutely right on the on the UFO thing that the parallels between the fairies and the ufos are really close you know we're dealing with kind of mystical semi-human uh, beings often from other worlds who as you say who abduct people and who you know there's also this kind of uh, this is it's, it's a bit taboo it's more taboo in the 19th century and um, there's this kind of sexual aspect mm. to it as well you know people are being uh, taken away and you know uh, you, you know sort of slightly dodgy things are going on and uh, you know all this kind of thing um yeah i mean that 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 that's there albeit it's in the background and the way it's reported in the fairy stories and the fairy reports of the 19th century and as you say it's there in um some of the ufo narratives of the mid and late 20th century as well mm. yeah absolutely well thomas this has been wonderful Thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Rick. If people want to find out more about you and get a hold of your book, how best do they do that? Well, you can uh, look me up on the interweb. I uh, have, uh, I'm, I'm a lecturer in history at Imperial College London, and I've got, uh, if you just uh, punch in Thomas Waters, you get my webpage. I have a, a Twitter account where I put bits and pieces about my research and things that I've come across about, you know, witches and fairies and whatnot um, uh, on Twitter. Um, if you'd uh, if you'd like to learn more about the modern history of witchcraft and magic, what it, how people end up believing that they're bewitched and cursed and how they've acted in these circumstances, how that's changed over the past two centuries, the book is Cursed Britain, A History of Witchcraft and Black Magic in Modern Times. And that's out with uh, Yale University Press. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to include all that in the show notes. Thank you, Rick. You're very welcome, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks for everything. That was great. That was a fascinating conversation with Thomas. If you don't have it already, I heartily recommend getting hold of a copy of the Cursed Britain book. As we really only skimmed the surface of the subject matter, there was a great deal that we didn't get to talk about. So many interesting characters and stories that shine a light on the nature of witchcraft in Britain in the modern age, and challenge a lot of preconceptions about its place and importance in society in that time. If you'd like to get in touch with me at Sphere HQ, 
please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms where you can follow and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, positive ratings and reviews really help to promote the podcast and are very much appreciated. Until next time, stay safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.